Good evening. The next lecture in this series is one that has not yet been announced to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. You'll be getting something with your Valentines on this. Excuse me a second. That lecture will be on Monday, the 23rd of March, and it is James Mosley, no stranger to these shores or this podium, the librarian of the St. Bride Printing Library in uh, London, speaking on the attempts by the French Academy to write accounts and descriptions of trades in the late 17th century and the manuscript sources for the history of those trades which have survived unpublished to this day, so far as I know. So that will be Monday, the 23rd of March. On Monday, the 30th of March, David McKittrick, who is librarian of Trinity College, Cambridge, will be speaking on Sir Geoffrey Keynes. This is the uh, centenary of his birth. And there will be lectures, I believe, now every Monday th throughout April, but the schedule of those will be published very shortly. I'm pleased that all of the regulars here coped with the reversal of the room without whimpering. And it's a great pleasure to have you all here, both regulars and uh, newcomers, to hear Professor Roger Reynolds speak on Roll Book and Candle and the role of roles in medieval liturgy. Professor Reynolds. Thank you very much. For the vast majority of modern people, rolls have nothing whatsoever to do with liturgy, only with bakeries, coins, drums, theater, and television. But to one significant group of Western society, a role has had liturgical significance for millennia. That group, of course, is the Jewish people whose ancestors honored rolls or scrolls long before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. And if these are unclear in the back, do raise your hand, John, or something, and I'll try to... Uh... Not only has the Torah scroll in particular had its special place in Jewish worship, but also its manufacture, handling, and storage have been the subject of special ritual regulations. For Western medieval folk, a roll, be it of parchment, papyrus, or leather, was a common means of word storage. But strangely, outside Jewish practice, the roll was little used as a liturgical object. Yet when it was, the occasions were of the most significant sort, involving some of the most important persons in medieval society both religious and secular. Hence, in their concentration on the more common book or codex, historians of both medieval liturgy and medieval book productions have ignored a significant token of the most solemn and dignified rituals in the Middle Ages. In this lecture, I want to focus on some of these roles and their liturgical function, how they were related to books, and surprisingly enough, how many of them were related to candles. And I should say that the title of this lecture was not chosen simply to appeal to devotees of New York theater, Rex Harrison, Lily Palmer, Random House, and John Van Druten, nor was it chosen because today is the octave of Candlemas. But before focusing our attention on liturgical roles themselves, 
let us set them in a wider context by looking briefly at some of the other ways roles were used in the West in the Middle Ages and the possible relation of these uses to liturgical practice. During the Middle Ages, a roll or scroll was called by a variety of names, volumen, carta, thomas, and even liber, libellus, and codex. Eventually, the late Latin term rotulus came into use, whence our word roll. Officials who cared for rolls had such special titles as rotularius, magister rotulorum, custos rotulorum, and so on and so forth. The most common use for roles in the Middle Ages in Western Europe was in the recording of legal and governmental documents. Masses of official records of all sorts were entered on roles, as those of you know who have ever worked in the PRO or the Public Record Office in London. Plea rolls, Parliament rolls, rolls of the Exchequer, so on and so forth. And visitors to the PRO also have an idea of the physical massiveness of some of the rolls themselves, such as the pipe rolls, which are wheeled into you on a wheelbarrow-like trolley. Not only were rolls used to record secular business, but also ecclesiastical business. Down even into the 11th century, papal charters were written on papyrus rolls, some as long as eight feet or more, the papyrus betokening the antiquity and the conservatism of the Roman see. Churches and monasteries also recorded transactions on rolls, as can be seen in this copy of an ancient roll of Modi Casino hung down uh, in front of me here. One of the lesser known types of ecclesiastical rolls were decisions of councils. And in the making of these decisions, the liturgical rituals of the councils mentioned these rolls. For example, the ancient Visigothic Ordo de Celebrando Concilio, whose echoes could be heard down even into Vatican II, ordered that codices be taken into, read, and used in the assembly. Yet some of the earliest illustrations of the ritual show the notarius carrying these codices in the form of rolls into the synodical churches. And here on the left-hand side, the lower left quadrant, you can see in the center the notarius, the notarius carrying a roll into the synod. And also, for example, here, of using rolls for conciliar decisions lasted well into the Middle Ages. For example, the decisions of the influential Council of Aachen of 816, held under Charlemagne's son Louis the Pious, can be found on just such a roll. And even into the 11th century, the remembrance of such conciliar decisions on rolls can be found in the well-known Canterbury or Edwin Psalter. There, an artist who was copying the well-known Utrecht Psalter, which has a depiction of a council, modified his ninth century model here, which shows a tasseled stole being placed around the deacon to a roll with writing on it being read in the same council by that same deacon. For use in private legal transactions, rolls were also used in the Western Middle Ages. A short transaction written on a single folio, a plagula, scheda, or scheduler, as they were known, 
could be rolled up, not unlike our modern university di diplomas. And countless testaments and other private legal documents are preserved in this form. There were many types of written records which could not be fitted onto a single folio that were copied onto longer rolls made of pieces sewn together. These would have been the medieval equivalent of our fold-out tables, maps, and appendices often sewn into uh, books or kept in separate back pockets. For example, extensive genealogical treatises with their diagrams of family trees, affiliations and the like were placed on rolls. Related to these were heraldic rolls covered with extended and related heraldic symbols belonging to significant families. Genealogical tables with their extended sequences of names and places were, in a sense, an epitome of an extended series of historical or quasi-historical narratives. And hence it comes as no surprise to find that chronicles were at times written on rolls. Books, of course, were used for such chronicles, but this meant that if it were a living, growing chronicle, blank pages would have to be kept in the book or choirs left unbound. In other words, there were no snap-out binders in the Middle Ages. How much simpler then to compile a chronicle in roll form simply by attaching new pieces to the bottom of the roll as the need arose. Many of the chronicle rolls still exist, such as an early medieval one at Novelese in northern Italy, which reaches well over 30 feet, or the chronicon of San Vicenzo in, in southern Italy, which shows the roll itself being rolled out. Following the path of a lengthy genealogy or heraldic sequence down a roll was not unlike following a map. And so it was that medieval maps were entered on rolls. Among the most famous of these is the Tabula Poitengeriana, which is a parchment roll of over 22 feet made in the 12th century, but based on a much older one, which shows the road from Britain all the way to the Ganges, if you wanted to carry the roll from Britain to, to the Ganges. Here you see, I guess it's Rome over here, one of the prime tourist spots for the 12th and 13th century. Jewish rolls with their biblical texts were used not only in a liturgical, but also in non-liturgical settings. And medieval Christians, too, at times, entered biblical texts on rolls for what were seemingly non-liturgical uses, such as the case with the renowned Joshua roll in the 10th century roll, or really scroll, since the writing is parallel to the long side of the roll. It's some 35 feet in length, a copy of a 4th or 6th century illustrated uh, Alexandrinian roll. There are numerous less ornately illustrated biblical scrolls made in southern Italy during the Middle Ages, although most of these contain Greek texts. We come now to a group of rolls that might be called para-liturgical because of their connection with liturgical texts or liturgical use. Some of the earliest extant rolls in ancient Egypt were the so-called books of the dead. 
During the Middle Ages in the West, there were parallels to these ancient scrolls in mortuary rolls or necrologies. These rolls contained lists of deceased brethren in a monastic or cathedral house, their relatives, benefactors, and so forth. These rolls, such as the Rotulus Longissimus of Saint Avril, were preserved at the altar, where on the anniversary of the death of the person, the roll would be open to the appropriate spot. And in fact, these rolls were periodically carried by a rotularius from monastery to monastery to get the latest news, the latest uh, death of a brother who, whose name should be put on the roll. On occasion, these necrological rolls would contain next to the name of the deceased person a brief description of him, perhaps a short poem or something similar. In a sense, then, they resemble a chronicle, or, if of a specially holy person, a saint's life. And indeed, saints' lives came to be written on rolls. When such happened, it was usual that only one saint's life would be entered, an unusually uh, or especially venerated saint in a local church or monastery. And because of the esteem in which that individual was held, the role itself could be ornately decorated, such as the Guthlach roll here, or really scroll, uh, with its series of roundels in which episodes from the life of the saint are pictured. Not as well known as the ancient Egyptian book of the dead, but equally as interesting, were ancient Egyptian roles in which plays, dramatic productions, or the like were entered. These found their successors in the Western Middle Ages in paraliturgical roles of plays, songs, poems, and romances. The reason for using roles to record this type of material are numerous. First, it appears that these pieces were often entered de novo on single pieces of parchment, or if long enough, on a series of pieces sewn together. So strong was this traditional means of original transcription in the late Middle Ages, that in the famous Heidelberg Manasseh Codex, the authors of the songs and poems are depicted together with rolls. And in one instance, the author is shown dictating to a female amanuensis short side of the roll itself. Once entered onto the roll, the singer, poet, or actor continued to use it for several reasons. First, a roll was cheap in that no binding was necessary. Second, it was lightweight and compact, and hence eminently portable for these individuals whose profession demanded extensive travel. And third, a text on a roll was easily sung or read. There were no pages to turn, no columns in which to lose one's place. In a recent article, Richard Rouse has examined just such a role, recently discovered in a binding in a book in UCLA's library. It's about five inches wide, actually, and the original length was probably about six feet long. Far more famous, however, than this small fragment are the famous Osterspiel uh, role of Muri, the Frankfurter Passionspiel, and the South Italian Easter play role from Sulmona in the south of Italy, 
all significant for their plays performed on the most solemn feasts of the Christian year. These paraliturgical roles of songs, poems, and drama are an appropriate bridge to roles that were used in a more, in a more formal liturgical setting, and so we turn to these. We begin first with the celebrated preface that the 9th century notker of St. Gallen attached to his famous collection of liturgical hymns and sequences, some of which are still used in churches throughout the world today. In this preface, Notker tells of presenting his sequences as he composed them to his teacher, Marcellus. Pleased with Notker's pieces, Marcellus had them written on rolls and parceled out to his choristers to sing. He further urged Notker to collect them into a little book. Notker, humble monk that he was, refused, but finally was persuaded to do so for the important Luitvard, Bishop of Vercelli, Abbot of Bobbio, and Archchaplain to Charles the Fat. And in fact, it has been shown recently that Notker's collection of sequences was indeed compiled on the basis of roles and texts used in the performance of the liturgy. This interesting account of Notker has several, has several implications. First, roles were used especially for relatively short liturgical texts. Second, they were used particularly by individuals performing relatively limited liturgical acts. And third, they were used especially in liturgical ceremonies that were sung or chanted. We now turn to a variety of of other types of liturgical roles that display one or more of these characteristics. Clearly the most solemn part of any of the Western Christian liturgical ceremonies was the canon of the mass. And it is virtually certain that before the text of the canon was incorporated, incorporated into codices or books, it was either memorized by the celebrant or written onto a libellus, not unlike some of the altar cards with the canon which you might uh, have seen on on altars. Although the, although the term libellus is usually applied to a few folios of text, the term could also be applied to rolls, and hence it is no surprise to find that as early as the 8th century, the canon of the Mass was occasionally entered on a roll. Pope Zachary is reported to have sent just such a rotulus to the missionary Boniface in Germany in the 8th century. And the fact that it was a papal gift probably means that it was ornately decorated, perhaps with a V for the very dinium and a T for the te igitur of the canon, both illuminated. Beyond these rolls with their relatively short canon, the simplest types of early rolls would have been those containing exorcisms. In antiquity, many of the magical texts and even the tabellae de fictionum with their horrible curses were kept on rolls, and perhaps medieval rolls with their solemn exorcisms casting out demons could be seen as the successors of those ancient rolls. Although I know of no excellent example of medieval rolls with exorcisms alone, sometimes they're included with other texts, they certainly were there. This is because in the ordination ceremony of every exorcist in the Middle Ages, a libellus or role of exorcisms was given to that exorcist as a symbol of his office. And one has to remember that every deacon, priest, 
bishop and so forth before he was ordained to those higher grades was ordained as an exorcist. And so you can see how many roles of exorcisms must have been given in the Middle Ages. It is an especially interesting fact that in the hundreds and hundreds of extant pontifical manuscripts containing ordination texts, the majority of illustrations depict the libellus of exorcisms as a role. Here we have a role on the right side being given to an exorcist. But what texts would these roles have contained and how would they have been used? As to their contents, they of course had texts driving out demons from a person, animal, or object. But attached to the exorcismal rite were litanies of the saints, which in solemn public occasions would have been chanted or sung. As to their liturgical use, exorcists who received the roles on their ordination usually did not perform the horrendous exorcisms of the devil we associate with the book or the movie The Exorcist. Rather, they might perform exorcisms at public baptisms or other more modest exorcisms permitted them by priests and bishops who, according to early medieval legislation, had the right to control exorcism. Closely related to exorcisms were benedictions given by priests and deacons. Again, most of these are found in codices called benedictionals and they can number into the hundreds in these uh, benedictionals. But a few roles of benediction still exist. One of the most interesting of these is in a mid-15th century role in Keble College, Oxford. It has a short group of benedictions for various people and things. But the striking thing about it is that it is clearly for a bishop, since in the historiated initial, which heads the role, a bishop is depicted reading from a role held by an attendant with the people of his flock gathered kneeling for the benediction. Such a role would have been appropriate to a bishop who had to travel from place to place, and a role offered to him the same portability, compactness, and ease of reading and singing also enjoyed by traveling musicians and actors. From an 11th or 12th century description of the liturgy of Milan by a certain Barolus, we know that rolls were used for singing of litanies in the winter and summer churches in that city. But during the Middle Ages, the most impressive singing of the litanies of the saints uh, was in the so-called Laudes Regiae. These were acclamations sung to emperors, kings, dukes, popes, bishops on the most solemn occasions such as coronations, ceremonial crown wearings, and so forth. A long life, successful reign, health, and victory over enemies was sung to the official involved. And attached to this was a litany of saints, wherein the prayers of hundreds and hundreds of saints could be invoked. Of these ceremonies of the Laudes in the Middle Ages, perhaps none is better known than that on Christmas Day in the year 800, where Charlemagne was crowned emperor by the Pope at St. Peter's in Rome. And indeed, one of the most solemn occasions for crown wearings and the singing of the Laudes was Christmas. Because they were used on the most solemn occasions, the Laudes were usually performed in great churches or monasteries. And by good fortune, a splendid Carolingian example of a role with these Laudes used in the imperial monastery of Lorsch has been preserved. Now in Frankfurt, 
this role of role was made for Lorsch, whose patron, St. Nazarius, is written in gold. At the conclusion of the text, there is a prayer for Louis the German and his wife, Emma, I guess Ludwig the German, and his wife, Emma. But what is particularly impressive are the decorations in gold, silver, bright reds, greens, and violets, and the long columns of saints whose prayers are asked. There are no less than 534 of these in three columns, written in red with alternating gold and silver used for the Sancta and Sancte preceding them. It is interesting, too, that on the back of the roll, someone in the 11th century wrote a text with musical notation. Let's listen for just a moment to some of the Carolingian laudes. I guess I have to turn lights for a moment.
Their roles with texts other than the Laudes could also be used at solemnities involving kings, the most celebrated being those for coronations. In the PRO in London, again, there is just such a coronation roll of some five membranes of about 13 by 54 centimeters, and it's said to be the coronation ordo for Edward II in 1308. It is in reality written, or it was in reality written somewhat later in the 14th century, but it's extraordinary because not only does it have a complete coronation ceremony, but also it has part of the text of the coronation mass. And the inclusion of the mass text is strange in that in the West it was not the custom to include the complete mass text on rolls, although as we've seen, uh, shorter elements of the mass, such as sequences and the canon, might be on rolls. Unlike the Western Church, the Greek and Oriental churches used rolls for entire texts of the ceremonies of the Eucharist, including their long prayers. In the West, outside of southern Italy, with its large population of Greek-speaking people, the common practice was to include prayers, lections, and the like in codices. Nonetheless, there is one very ancient example of a role in which a long series of prayers have been entered. This is in the renowned Rotulus of Ravenna, now Captain Lugano. Written in the 7th or 8th century in great unsealed letters, the roll contains some 42 prayers. Although some liturgical experts have argued that the prayers were intended for the Advent season, there is an equally large number who has argued that they are for the vigil of Christmas. Perhaps there is no final solution to their use, but there are several indicia that would lead me to opt for the Christmas vigil. First, even for the 7th and 8th centuries, a liturgical role like this was extraordinary, and one would expect that it would be used for an extraordinary occasion like Christmas, and not for a series of fairly mundane occasions such as the days of Advent. Second, if a word count of the important terms is taken, the words lumen and lux and other words referring to light and darkness are far and away the most common. These words could, of course, be used in Advent prayers looking to Christmas. But how much more appropriate would these prayers have, would have been had they been used for the vigil of, of Christmas with its celebrations made especially bright and solemn with a plethora of candles and perhaps the presence of an emperor or king? Third, as will be seen, there was a similar use of rolls on that other most solemn vigil of the Christian year, Easter. And hence we might have in our Rotulus of Ravenna here a use paralleling that for the vigil of Christmas. In the case of regal coronation ceremonies, we have seen how rolls were used perhaps to add dignity and solemnity to an inaugural rite. On the ecclesiastical side, the same was true. It is known that as early as the ninth century, ceremonies for clerical inauguration, called ordination, could be entered on rolls, as Hincmar of Reims wrote in a letter to Bishop Adventius of Metz. And well into the 14th and 15th century, bishops continued to use rolls for ordinations. In most cases, these ordination ceremonies were kept in ceremonies. And it is a fact that has generally escaped art historians that the most frequently and beautifully illustrated texts in pontifical codices, those books used by bishops and pontiffs, are those for ordination. This is in part because the ordination ceremonies were generally the first text in a pontifical codex, and an illuminator would put forth his best talents 
in the first few folios of the volume. But it undoubtedly also has to do with the importance clerical ordination held in the hierarchical ordering of the church. In any event, one of the most dramatic series of illustrated texts for clerical ordination can be found in a roll made in Benevento in southern Italy in the late 10th century for Bishop Landolf, this role is extraordinary for a number of reasons. First, its text is written in Beneventan script, one of the most beautiful of medieval scripts, and one that is now recognized as preeminently a liturgical script. Second, the text of the rite is an, unusually, is an unusual one, characteristic of southern Italy and Dalmatia, where the old Beneventan liturgical rite or use was practiced. Hence, it was appropriate to have the Beneventan liturgical script used for Beneventan liturgical texts. Third, the illustrations are not simply stereotyped depictions of any ordination, but the text used by Landolf himself, and they depict very, very accurately the rubrics on the roll. In other words, the illustrations are a type of visual rubric for the bishop's use. If you had a bishop who's not very clever, he could at least look at the pictures. Fourth, in the text, candles play a part, for as will be seen, one of the symbols given by the bishop to a new acolyte is a candle with its wax, wick, and candelabrum. Fifth, scrolls and rolls frequently are depicted in the illustrations themselves. Sixth, parts of the text are musically noted, and hence not unlike other roles involving singing. And finally, it is significant that the text and illustrations are written in the same direction, so that it is the bishop who reads the text and views the illustrations, again suggesting that the illustrations are visual rubrics for the bishop. Let us go quickly through some of these depictions to illustrate these points. But before doing so, I should mention that although very often the figures are drawn in only black lines, there is in the actual role a profusion of gold brilliant blues, brilliant blue and red. In the first scene, a square-nimmed Landolphus in the center, flanked by an archdeacon, or is flanked by an archdeacon holding a roll. Landolf is both blessing and handing a pair of keys to small doorkeepers. At the right of these figures, two priests steer individual ordinands to the bishop, holding the bent little fellows according to the rubrics, right hand on top of the head, and left hand beneath the chin to keep them from running off. In the second scene, Landolf is still center stage, reading an ordination prayer written on a rotulus held by the archdeacon. And it's interesting that it's held uh, not vertically as the Landolf role itself would have been, but horizontally as a scroll. Prostrate at Landolf's feet is a group of doorkeepers who have been brought for his benediction by the group of presbyters to our right. The third scene depicts Landolf, again assisted by the archdeacon, giving the doorkeepers a codex of lessons, thereby ordering them lectors. And it should be remembered that for lessons, the Western liturgy usually uh, used codices and not rules. The lectors then prostrate themselves before Landolf to uh, have his blessing. In the fifth scene, Landolf is shown handing to a group of exorcists a roll of exorcisms, which the roll calls not a rotulus, but a libellus. 
After the benediction of exorcists, the role pictures the ordination of acolytes. And here Landolf presents to the acolytes a candlestick called a chariostatum in Beneventan style, a candle in an empty vessel. The seventh scene is divided into two parts. On the left, Landolf presents to the subdeacons a large, empty, lobed paten and chalice. And on the right, the archdeacon gives one group of subdeacons a pitcher and the others a basin. Two scenes meet us in the eighth illustration. On the left, it appears at first glance that Landolf has presented or has placed a stole on the right shoulder of a deacon. But close inspection indicates that Landolf has been caught in mid-action, about to place the stole correctly, as the rubrics tell us, on the deacon's left shoulder. As Landolf presents the stole, a group of subdeacons and Dalmatic await their turn. In the right-hand scene, Landolf consecrates the deacon, while a presbyter behind them holds his hands over the bowed heads of the ordinands. In the ninth scene, the deacons with stoles are presented by, by presbyters to Landolf. As they prostrate themselves at his feet, he will say the allocution to the people, sit nobis fratres, and so forth. After another prayer, Landolf places around the neck of the new presbyter what the Beneventan text calls an orarium and what a intruded Carolingian text calls a stola. Other candidates wait their turns for their stoles. Landolf then dresses the new presbyter in a planeta or chasuble, while, another can while other candidates stand expectantly holding their chasubles. And then finally, the role shows Landolf anointing the right hand of the new presbyter with his very large right thumb, just as the rubrics direct. And behind Landolf stands a cleric, an archdeacon in this case, with a rotulus, which presumably contains the ordination rite. As well as the special role for ordinations, the church at Benevento, and in fact in southern Italy, had other roles for use on the most solemn occasions of the Christian year. Of all of these, none were more so than those in Holy Week. And hence it is not surprising to find roles being used for a variety of occasions in that week. We know, for example, that on Maundy Thursday, the reconciliation of public penitents was read from a role by the archdeacon. Although it is not certain how these roles looked, it is probable that their penitential nature required that they be somber indeed, with few decorations. But for the joyous vigil of Easter on Saturday night, there are numerous extant roles, and these are some of the most spectacular, ornate, and celebrated roles known from the Middle Ages. What were the ceremonies of the Easter vigil, and how were these roles used? The first element of the ceremony was the lighting of the new fire, since on the Maundy Thursday before, all of the lights of the church had been extinguished, signifying the death of Christ. Hence at the Easter vigil, which came during the year around the spring equinox with its rising sun, a new fire signifying the rising of Christ, the true light, was lighted. Natural means such as a glass or flint were used. This new fire was then used to light one or more candles that were carried on a trident hearth. Pitchfork. They were carried to the front of the church. There stood the paschal candle and a lectern or ombo or pulpit. In southern Italy, whence our rolls came, the candle and its stick and the ambones were of gigantic proportions. The stick itself might stand to 30 feet or more, and the candle on it was also of immense proportions, 
if we can believe contemporary illustrations, such as you see on, the, on your right over there. As a Christ symbol, the candle stood there inscribed with a date on Odomini, a cross, and five grains of incense, signifying the five wounds of Christ. The pulpits or ambones were also of huge proportions, up to 30 feet high and 20 feet wide, and they were decorated with polished red porphyry and glittering gold, blue, and red mosaic tesserae. A deacon, vested in white, mounted the ambo to sing the beautiful and demanding Paschal Preconium, or Exultet, so-called because the text begins with the words Exultet Yam Angelica Turba. Supposedly written in the fourth century by Ambrose or Augustine, the text read by the deacon might be in one of two forms, the Vulgate form used in most parts of Europe and in Rome, and the old Italic or old Italian used in the south of Italy and Dalmatia where Beneventan script was used. In the rest of Europe, the deacon simply sang the exulted from a book. And here we see the oldest example from the written in the eighth century or thereabout. But in southern Italy, this whole ceremony was made thoroughly spectacular by the use of exultant rolls, which were unfurled by the deacon over the ambo as he sang. Originally, the illustrations were like those of the Landolf roll, that is, or the ordination roll, that is, in the same direction of the text, so that only the deacon, as he read it, could fully appreciate them. And our oldest extant exultant roll from the 10th century the facsimile of which you'll see in a moment over on that beautiful uh, uh, ladder, uh, I guess it's our ombo for tonight, was originally illustrated that way. That is text and illustration going the same way. But in the 11th century, it became the custom to reverse the text and pictures so that the congregation might enjoy the brilliant gold and colored illustrations of the text in the light of the flames of the surrounding candles. As a deacon sang and the congregation pushed close to the ambo to see what must have been the best medieval picture show in town, a breathtaking series of scenes was unfurled. First, after inviting the angelic host to join in his exaltation, the deacon sang of the triumph of the eternal king, pictured on the role as Christ overcoming the powers of hell. Then he bade Mother Earth to be joyful She might be pictured as this voluptuous Neapolitan ancestor of Sophia Loren, or as a woman dressed on the right-hand side in her spring finery. Rolling along on a roll perhaps like this with Greek saints, with Greek uh, descriptions in the margins, the deacon would ask his assembled brethren to pray for him as he sang the difficult exulted. And goodness knows he certainly needed all the prayers he could have, as any deacon who has ever sung the exultant will tell you. He would then launch into the magnificent preface, beginning uh, with veridinium, and usually pictured with this very large V here upside down, uh, surrounded by the angelic worthies. The long preface began by noting that Christ's blood had wiped away the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. This was likened to the Jewish Passover from Egypt, 
when the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts. Further, it was likened to the crossing of the Red Sea, an obvious reference to the baptismal ceremonies which were to come very quickly thereafter. Moreover, the vigil was likened to the night in which the blackness of sin was overcome by the light of the fiery column and Christ burst the bonds of death. At this point, the deacon sang two sections of the exalted that had been often condemned by various ecclesiastical writers right back to patristic antiquity. First, there was the paradox paradoxical reference to the happy sin of Adam which had made possible the coming of Christ and the joy of Easter then there was the praise of the virgin bees which had provided the wax for the candle this was often condemned as being too virgilian or pagan and hence it was omitted from some exalted versions and in a number of roles this section has been snipped out all of the Ontario censor, I don't know what New York censors are like. And in the roll there down below, the uh, section on the bees has been cut out, but fortunately it was saved and, and uh, kept. The depiction of the bees in the rolls could be quite varied, as can be seen in these two slides, one showing beekeepers at work, and the other bees flying from their hives that look very much like our modern bee hives with their supers. Returning to the biblical imagery, the deacon compared the difficulties. First, he asked God the Father to receive the evening sacrifice of the candle. But due to a misunderstanding of the Latin word incensi, it was taken to mean the sacrifice of incense. So everything came to a stop in some churches while the incense was blessed and grains were put into the candle. Again, a great stop in the, in the exultant. Then, singing of the candle, the deacon mentioned the flickering flame stirred up in God's honor. But again, the Latin, word, the Latin words, rutilans ignis, were misunderstood to mean the flickering flame ignites in God's honor. And so, in some places, the words were sung. When these words were sung, the candle was lighted. The, the uh, upshot of this is that in the churches where this happened, the church would be in total blackness until this part was sung when the candle uh, gave its light. It's been argued that this was one of the reasons that these, that these exultant roles went out of style after the 13th century when this interpretation and use was given to the text. That is, the church was too dark for the congregation to see the exultant role, I guess as you have here, uh, until this particular uh, point in the exultant. Then came the conclusion to the exultant, which resembles remarkably the ancient laudes mentioned earlier. First, the deacon sang a litany of prayer for the clergy. You can see him here with his clergymen all around. Then there, was, there were prayers for the pope and bishops, whose names were mentioned. Then for the emperor and king, again mentioned by name. And then finally, as if they needed it, for the troops of the temporal ruler. Let's now hear just a little bit of the exultant, the first being sung in Latin, and then in an English translation. I'll turn on this light so that you can see some of the exultant role itself. And uh, the exultant, uh, that's way up there, it's, it's actually, this is the way it was originally formed. The letters, the, the writing from the same one here, this is the 10th century. And then the rest is then cut off. 
play just a little bit of Beethoven, first in Latin and then in English translation. parenthetically that although the last of the 31 extant rolls uh, was made in the 13th century, they continue to be used in uh, Europe uh, into the 20th century. It's reported that in the cathedral at Salerno, two of them were hung from the great ambo of the cathedral there on Easter. Well, after this spectacular ceremony, the vigil service continued with as many as 12 Old Testament lessons, each prophesying the death and resurrection of Christ. And then followed the great baptismal service, which was especially appropriate on that night in the Western Church, because baptism, with its immersion in the font, was seen as a type of the salvific work of Christ when he was swallowed up into the, or swallowed down, I guess, into the watery grave of death, and by rising, cleansed humans of their sin. Because of the solemnity of this baptismal rite and its association with, exult with the exalted, Rolls were also used, and two of them still survive, again from southern Italy. One of them belonged to Landolf of Benevento and is kept in Rome with the ordination roll. And like this latter roll, the baptismal roll is written in Beneventan script and has the characteristics of the other. According to the rite, the baptismal service began with the blessing of the new flame and the chrismation of a candle by the bishop. Then came a procession to the font accompanied by a litany, which in this case, in the Landolf roll, is written on the back of the roll. Then arriving at the font, the bishop blessed the font, which is in its form not unlike another medieval font. Whoops. Which you see here. The baptisms were then commanded to approach with their sponsors, males on one side, females on the other, and they were baptized separately. The bishop then divided the water with his hand in four parts and sprinkled a little bit to the four corners of the 
of the world. He then plunged the candle into the font, just as you see Landolf doing here. Thereafter, he breathed on or insufflated the water three times. You can see him huffing and puffing there. By this time, the baptisms had been undressed and were held in towels by their sponsors. You can see them over there. Then the bishop poured chrism, which is here held by a cleric, into the water. And after that, the baptism took place in which the little infants and children were dunked right into the water itself, as they still are in, in southern Italy. The other surviving baptismal role comes from Bari and is different in several respects. Not only is the text different, the script is slightly different. It's in a Beneventan Bari type script. Uh, the episodes are slightly different, the iconography and so forth. The important thing, though, is that the text and pictures have been reversed, as they were in most exultant roles. And so Guglielmo uh, Cavallo has argued that what they were doing with the baptismal role was simply following the example of the, the exultant roles. Um, it couldn't be used in a baptistry because there were no lecterns or ambones there, but it's clear that there were. And so the Bari role would have been used very much in the way the uh, exultant roles were, and that uh, placed or rolled over the lectern itself. In the Bari roll, there are two illuminations. This one showing the uh, procession into the baptistry, something that we didn't see in the other one. Then just before the great preface with its large V for Veriginium, there's a scene that is a conflation of various actions. While a bishop blesses the font, a dove from heaven zips down into the water, signifying the epiclesis at which time the bishop usually in insufflated the water. Across him, a deacon plunges a candle into the font, and behind him are our sponsors with their naked little baptisms. Behind the bishop are a number of clerics, one of whom holds a vial of chrism, another an archiepiscopal cross, and a third a codex, and not a roll, right here. Why a codex and not a roll? Well, one can only speculate here, but it may have been because the bishop himself used a codex or a libellus for his part of the baptism, whereas the deacon would use his role at the ombo with its illustration. This then might explain why the second scene was placed strangely before and not after the great V of the preface. That is, as the cleric sang the preface and the bishop and his party and baptisms gathered at the font, the scene on the roll with its conflation of actions was a signal to the assembled congregation that the most solemn ceremony of the baptism itself had started. Well, the concluding illustration on many of the exultant rolls depicted the donor with the roll itself genuflecting before the person or persons to whom he was offering it. And so let me conclude this lecture on rolls by genuflecting, at least figuratively, in honor of the School of Library Science here, to which I offer this lecture. And I should say that it was originally on a roll, at least it looked that way to me, as it issued forth from my computer printer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.